Acts chapter 4. And we will start in verse 32. But before we get there, who do you fear? Is it man? Or is it God? Now, not fear in the scary sense, but in the respect and awe and reverence sense of the word. Who do you have the most reverence for? Who do you have the greatest respect for? Who do you have the highest esteem for? Who do you fear? Is it man or is it God? We have a broad overview of this question being answered in our text. We see two stories. A man fearing God and two people fearing man. And by these two stories, we see two diagnostic questions that we can ask ourselves to see who it is we fear. It's easy to think that we fear God, but it it should show in our actions in these ways. And so we ask these two diagnostic questions. Am I laying down my life? And am I lying to the Holy Spirit? Am I laying down my life? And am I lying to the Holy Spirit? With this in mind, let's read. Acts 4.32 Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, (coughs) sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. 
Father, right now we pray first and foremost that we admit and confess that we don't know what your word is about. We cannot know because of our sin. And so, Father, would you, by your grace, open your word to us. Every one of us in this room has some sort of sin that we are dealing with. Father, would you remove every distraction so that we see you and so that we remember the grace that you have purchased for us at the cross. God, if there is anything now that I say that comes from my lips that is against you or your word, that is a distraction to the gospel, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. And if there is anything that any of us think that is contrary to you, to sound thinking of you, would you remove it from our minds? God, in, in a miraculous fashion, would you show up and would you help us to see only what you have for us to see and nothing more? Be with us in this time and help us and guide us to see the truth. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who do you fear? Who do you have the most reverence for? Who do you have the greatest respect for? Who do you have the highest esteem for? Is it man or is it God? The answer to this question will show itself when we answer these two questions. Am I laying down my life and am I lying to the Holy Spirit? Let's start with the first one. Am I laying down my life? We begin our passage in verse 32, but immediately before this, since there's a now at the very beginning, we have to see what was before the now. Uh, we saw Peter and John arrested and put on trial for teaching about the resurrection. And um, all of the religious leaders at the time, they were greatly annoyed at it because they did not believe in the resurrection. So uh, they put them on trial before the Sanhedrin, the same men who, uh, who accused Jesus and then uh, acquitted, not acquitted, the opposite of acquitted. What's the legal term there? They put Jesus on trial and then they crucified him. They put him to death. The Sanhedrin said to them, don't speak or teach any more in his name. You can go free, but don't speak or teach any more in his name. And Peter said to them, uh, we must listen, whether we must listen to God or to you, you must choose. Because we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The same man who denied Jesus three times had the power and the boldness to say that. How? The Holy Spirit. By this Holy Spirit... People were speaking the gospel in languages they didn't know. People are being healed. Thousands of people are coming to saving faith by hearing this gospel and repenting of their sins. And there are anywhere between uh, three to 5,000 men now. And we see this full number in verse 32. Now the full number, somewhere between three and 5,000, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Three to 5,000 people. That's amazing. Sometimes I'm not even on the same page with my wife. But two people. Three to 5,000 people are all of one heart and soul. Your purpose is my purpose. Your God is my God. We are unified. 
We look different. We sound different. We have different personalities. We have different incomes, homes, lifestyles, philosophies, parenting styles, eating habits. But we are fellow heirs. We are members of the same body. And we are partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that is more important to me than our differences. Three to 5,000 people. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It happened. And great grace, salvation, was upon them all. Because of this, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many were as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then we see an example of that in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now this doesn't hit home with a lot of us because we don't all have land like this. I think we have .0025 acres, um, and we share a driveway with our neighbors, so that's just horrible. But land in the Middle Eastern culture was how people survived. With land, they cultivated a field, or uh, they would raise animals for food, trade, or to sell. And Barnabas just sold a whole field of his inheritance, of his livelihood, And he gave all of the proceeds to the apostles so that they could distribute to whoever had need. Barnabas is laying down his life for those in need. Why? Because he loves them. 1 John 3, verse 16 says this. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, Jesus And we now ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in it? Listen to what God does here. What is the greatest problem of any human ever? The fact that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. God's original design for his creation was for them to glorify him and for them to enjoy him forever. By sinning, humans mar the image of God that they were created with, and they have this darkness in them now. And God is just and holy and right to banish every single one of us from heaven for it. And we have no way back to fellowship and relationship with God in and of ourselves. There are no good deeds that remove the stain of sin. And even if there were good deeds that did it, we wouldn't do them perfectly. So what is the way to heaven? How does a sinful, fallen short of the glory of God human gain access to eternal life? Since they can't do it on their own, God looked on us and had mercy. He didn't close his heart against us. He came. We have a God who did not give us a plan or a program to say, see if you can make it up here. He came to get us. He came to save us. And so what is our response? By that, we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. So what is our response? But we ought to lay down our lives 
for Christ and for the brothers, to love them. How? By the same love that we were shown in the gospel. It is the gospel that saves us, and it is the gospel that sanctifies us. We live in our new identity by coming back to the same good news that gave us our identity in the first place. So we are constantly coming to knowledge of who we truly are in Christ at all times. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. He lives in us. He controls what we do because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. What purpose? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Because Jesus laid himself down for the sake of those in need, we lay our lives down for the sake of those in need. We do not live this life to ourselves. We do not live this life for our comforts, our wants, our desires, our dreams, our best lives. We deny it all for the sake of others. Now this is completely anti what our culture wants you to believe. Here are just uh, some things I've gathered from not even just our American secular culture, but from our Christian culture. And it's heartbreaking. But here are just some snippets of what I've gathered from Christian authors and Facebook posts. You need to love yourself. Wash your own face. When you are filled with self-love, you make better choices. Sometimes you have to follow your heart no matter the consequences because that's what's best for you. Don't do that. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. You and only you are responsible for who you become and how happy you are. You should be the very first of your priorities. What? It's this American feel-good therapeutic God that gets in the way of us denying ourselves because that God is all about what's better for us. But Matthew 10, 39 says this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 3.30, he must increase, I must have this awesome life. No. I must decrease. Our culture is all about what, what we can be doing better, but grasping the good news of who we are in Christ, that's what brings us true rest. Above all, we are seeking and striving to know who we are in Christ Jesus. And if we let this truth become the foundation of how we see the world, then no matter what comes to us, no matter, uh, no matter how we see the world, we'll be content to glorify Him in every situation. Whether or not it seems like you're accomplishing your goals or your dreams or the life you always <coughs> wanted. We all have one goal to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so whatever we miss out on here on earth, we can be okay with it because we have everything we could ever want or need or dream or desire in our Savior. And one day we'll be in his presence where everything, whatever we had a fear of missing out on here, it will be there for us in its perfect form. So we lay our lives down 
What do we lay down? It could be that we lay down the way we think we need to look or feel so that we focus on others and not us. Maybe we lay down our need to be served so that we serve our wife or husband instead of expecting it. Maybe we lay down our need for love and affection so that we can give it to others. Maybe we lay down the food or drink we are addicted to for the sake of our health or family. Maybe we lay down a comfortable Sunday morning to stand in the heat to welcome people into the door. Maybe we lay down our comforts, our desires, our wants, our needs, our hopes, our dreams. One way that we see in our text is the selling of possessions to give generously to those in need. And the point is not to follow this exactly because maybe we don't have that much to sell. The point is that it's going to cost something. We will lose something. It is laying our lives down. It is denying ourselves. It is taking up a cross and dying to ourselves daily. But it is life for someone else. So what can you lay down this week? And who will you lay it down for? Ultimately, our answer to the question, am I laying my life down, shows who we fear. If I am not laying, my down, laying down my life for Christ and my brothers and sisters, then I am fearing man. Are you laying down your life? Point two, am I lying? Question two, am I lying to the Holy Spirit? Look at chapter five, verse one. But, here's where we get the contrast of everything that we just read. This is where the church has its first issue, its first hiccup. Chapter five, nothing good happens in chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And this is in contrast to Barnabas who we just saw. But what's the issue here? They still gave. Only they knew that they were keeping back some of it so they're still going to give. What's, what's wrong with that? Look at verse 3. We don't know how, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's essentially saying, you did not have to sell it. You were not commanded to sell your land. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You weren't even uh, commanded to give us any of this. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man. You didn't lie to any of us, but to God. We see uh, the issue, the deeper underlying issue, just a little more clearly in an Old Testament story. Um, It closely relates to this one. Joshua, who led the people of Israel after Moses, he's conquering all kinds of nations. He's driving people out of the promised land so that this can be God's people, um, their land. And everything is going by without any hiccups. Everything's going really well until one day. They had just conquered Jericho. They walked around the city seven times. The walls fell out. But uh, after conquering, they were supposed to have devoted all the riches, all of the treasures, all of the possessions to fire so as to not rely on any other thing but God. But one guy named Achan 
He didn't do that. They go in to the next city, and God is not with them. And they lose the whole battle within one day. And Joshua can't figure it out. He sits there, and he tears his robe, and he's like, I don't know what happened. What's going on, God? I thought you were with us. And then God steps in, and he says this in Joshua 7. And this, we see, is what's wrong uh, with Ananias and Sapphira too. Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You have sinned, you have stolen, you have lied. Get up, return, repent, rededicate your life and destroy the idols that remain among you. But the question remains, why would they have done this in the first place? Why would they seek to lie in this way? Most likely what happened is that they saw Barnabas and they felt jealous. Barnabas was most likely praised. Most likely because he did a kind and generous and humble thing. And they wanted to respond in the same way, but only on the outside. They wanted everyone else to see. They're hypocrites. They're fronting an image of what they want others to see so that they look better. And this is the opposite of laying their lives down. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept anything back. But they did. For fear of man, not fear of God. And this is a sin. It is lying to the Holy Spirit, and thus it is a holy offense to God who sent his son to die for that sin. So what does God do with this? Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of him. The young men and uh, rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord, to lie to the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. It's important to know that this is not a normative picture of what happens anytime someone lies to the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, none of us in the room remain. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is a reminder to us that the sovereign God of the universe sees our heart and that he hates sin and that he's not to be mocked or toyed around with Jesus, in Revelation 2, says this. All the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Everyone knows that that's exactly what just happened. So great fear came upon them. The wages of sin is death. God is perfectly just to drop any of us right here, right now. The reason he doesn't is because of the mercy and grace that he exercises on behalf of his son. The father is patient with his sons and daughters 
because of the patience that he did not show with his true son. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died that death for us. So then the question is, do you lie to God? Do you practice spiritual deceit? Do you attempt to make others think that you are a more committed Christian than you are? Are you truthful? Do you tend to exaggerate? The answer for all of us is no, of course not. But it can simply be this. Do you test his patience and grace by sinning still? Even though you have received salvation. It's the same thing. Because all sin finds itself trying to hide from God. When we sin, we don't want to know that God sees all and that he is dwelling within us. And so by sinning, we run and hide from the truth. And in that way, we lie to God. So, how do we grow in holiness in this area? Because I don't know about you, but for me, when I read this, I think, oh my gosh. How do I do this? The answer, spoiler alert, is by the gospel. Titus 2, verse 11 through 14 says this. For the grace of God has appeared. Jesus, the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come, bringing salvation for all people. And then, so not only salvation, but training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But what are we supposed to do in the meantime? I think all of Christianity kind of gets like, okay, God saves. Now what? It's not that we graduate onto bigger and better doctrines. We are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is the same gospel that trains us to renounce ungodliness and trains us to live godly lives. We sin because we love to sin. So the way to fight sin is not by focusing on sin, but by finding something greater than sin to put our affections on. Our heart is where our, be- our behavior, our heart is where our actions, our heart is where everything that we do flows from. And sin comes from from an affection that values something more than God. So we outvalue sin with God. We need more and more and more and more joy in our God. And we find it in the gospel. There is nothing in your life except for the gospel that has depth over and over. And it gets deeper and more beautiful as you study it and as you know it. But this also means that Jesus is the power perfecting our faith, not our work or power. This means that I am less afraid of man because of what Christ has done for me. If I am afraid, then I'm not identifying myself in Christ. Our fear flows from who we are. 
So then the gospel then sets us free from having to keep back anything for ourselves. Because in Jesus, we have everything. So whatever we lose, it's fine. Whatever we see, like, oh, I might have to lose this. I might have to give it away. I might not get to see this. It's totally fine. You have everything in Jesus. How do we do it? How do we come back to this gospel to be changed? How, do we, how are we trained in this gospel to renounce ungodliness, to live godly lives? Simply by beholding Jesus. By seeing Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It is by beholding the image and glory of Christ that we are transformed. So behold the man upon the cross, taking our place, bearing the weight of wrath that you and I deserved in our sins to take away the punishment that we deserved so that we may take his place, bearing the name of beloved, to spend eternity with our Father. So we ask, am I lying to the Holy Spirit? Because if I fear God, then surely, what do I need to lie for? Lastly, though, we have to answer what it means to fear God. Proverbs 14, 27 says this. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. It is not scary. Uh, John Piper, he sums the fear of God up well, and I'm just going to read you a quote uh, directly from him. So I picture myself climbing in the mountains, say the Himalayas, and I'm on these massive rock faces and I see a storm coming. It's going to be a massive storm, and I feel unbelievably vulnerable on these mountain precipices. And so, I'm desperately looking for a little covert in the rock where I won't be blown off the side of the cliff to destruction. And I find it. I find a hole in the side of a mountain, and I spin quickly, and suddenly the holiness and justice and power and wrath and judgment of God breaks over me like a hurricane. But I know that I am totally safe which means all that horrible danger is transposed into the music of majesty and I can enjoy it rather than fearing it. And I think that's what the cross is. Jesus died for us to provide a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear and trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear. Hebrews 12, 28-29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken in that mountain precipice. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Nehemiah 1.11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. The fear of God gives us delight and joy in our hearts because we know that we have Jesus. There's a kind of fear that draws us in because it's say, oh, there is my safety. 
And perhaps the greatest point about fear in God is found in Isaiah 11, 2, and 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. The reason I say it's the greatest is because it's not about us. This verse is about Jesus. It delighted Jesus to fear God, and Jesus feared God perfectly. The bad news is that we do not and we cannot fear God perfectly. But the good news is that Jesus feared God in all the ways that we should have to live eternal life. But we don't because we love our sin. (coughs) Only one person could properly fear the Lord in this world. And because of Christ, God's invitation to draw near to him extends to all nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And because of Christ, we can draw near with confidence based on him, based on his perfect fear of the Lord. And so we rest. We rest in the fact that Jesus has accomplished that work on our behalf, and then we work from that rest. We have the utmost respect and reverence and awe of God because in Jesus we do not have to be afraid of him. The God who moves mountains and shakes the earth and created the universe is nothing to be toyed with. He is not to be mocked. We still respect him as a son respects the father. But in Jesus we are loved by him. And perfect love casts out fear. The fear of the Lord is about drawing near to him. When we fear him, we come close. When we draw near to God through Christ again and again in the gospel, it means we are choosing to turn from sin. True fear of the Lord draws near in faith, fearing God because he is God, but also knowing that he is gracious and merciful. So what is our response? Am I fearing God? Or am I fearing man? Am I laying my life down? Am I lying to the Holy Spirit by sinning at all? The response is to fear. The response is to turn back. Knowing that we can turn back because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, to remember our identity in Christ this morning, to remember what Christ has paid for us again this morning, that our fear may be in the proper place, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And week by week, we, f- we rest in this finished work alone and nothing else. If you're a believer... You're welcome to the table to partake as family. However, if you are not a believer or if you are in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. 1 Corinthians says you would be eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. But if you are in unrepentant sin, the proper fear of God for you is not to be afraid of wrath. In Jesus, there is no wrath left for you. Let it be your joy to return to the Father, knowing full well that you do not deserve it. But you have it. And take hold of 
mercy and grace yet again. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as a believer, that is you. Repent of your sins in this time and believe again. If you're an unbeliever, the proper fear of God for you is a fear of the wrath to come. God is not to be trifled with. God is a wrathful and vengeful God, and as it sits, you are under that wrath for marring his image by your sin. But there is a way for you. Jesus has taken the sins of the world on himself to be a substitute for those who would believe that he may take the punishment that you deserve so that you may take eternity as a son or daughter. Please don't leave without knowing for sure. Because in Jesus you can know. Would you turn from your sins and believe in Jesus today? For all of us, there is a sense in which we know and we have to confess that we are coming before this table unworthy. There is nothing in us that deserves this. There is nothing in us that is beautiful except Christ. And so when you're ready, uh, take the time to pray through whatever it is God has given you uh, and take your time to repent of your sins, to examine your life. Uh, But when you're ready, grab the elements at the back of the room. We'll take them together here in a minute. Uh, But here's a prayer if you would like to pray it. Father, I confess that too often I'm caught up in fearing man instead of you. I sin by not laying down my life and by lying to you. Would you, by the grace I have in Jesus, change this in me that I may glorify you more? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, grab the elements at the back of the room, bring them back. The song that we're about to sing says, He breaks the bow, He bends the spear. That is our God. He causes (coughs) wars to cease. He does move mountains. He created the earth that we live on. And yet the chorus is, Lord of hosts, you are with us. How is it true that we can turn to a God like that and not be afraid, but have respect and awe and wonder and reverence for him? Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown to us wretched sinners that you did not send a plan or a program, but that you came to save us. 
And so, Father, would you let us behold Jesus. We held the symbols of his body and his blood that is now our body, body and the, the blood that we are covered in. And so, Father, would you let us to reflect on that truth as we sing so that you are most glorified, so that you are most praised, and so that you are most feared. Father, help us to see Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.